Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, unless it's evening or morning where you are. I think those are the only three options. In Spanish, there's a, another word for that sort of late night thing, madrugada. I think in English, I don't think there really is a word for that. But anyway, good whatever time it is where you are. It's uh, San Francisco, 425 p.m. Memorial Day. I uh, was supposed to be interviewing a gentleman who um, was going to drop by the hotel here on his way back from Sacramento, but he's run into some traffic and logistical issues, so he's not going to make it. Uh, we're going to get together on a future visit to San Francisco um, He's an interesting cat. He was um, convicted of manufacturing and um, distributing LSD and MDMA. He's a chemist and uh, he defended himself in court um, attempting to argue that um, it's a universal human right to alter one's consciousness as we wish. The court did not buy that argument, but you got to admire the guy for making it. Um, anyway, he spent some time in prison and uh, then was eventually released on a technicality after I think about eight years, more or less, if I remember correctly. Anyway, that's not happening uh, because, as I say, he ran into traffic, logistical stuff, whatever. So. But since I've got all the gear out, I thought this might be a good opportunity to do uh, talking, uh, uh, not talking, a ranting, aroma episode, ranting out my ass. I've got about an hour before I need to run off to watch the Golden State Warriors win game seven, historically. And then after that game, uh, I'm going to be interviewing a guy who walked the entire length of Japan. So... Stay tuned for that episode. Tyler. Yeah. Goddamn Tyler. Unless I get so shit-faced watching the game that I can't do it, but uh, I rarely get that shit-faced. So, uh, okay, so let's do a ranting out my ass episode. Here's an, episode, uh, here's an email that just came in this morning. Um, okay, this is about friendship. I'm writing to ask your philosophy on friendships. I have a friend I've known for the better part of 15 years since we were children. Uh, he was the socially inept, overweight kid nobody liked and made fun of. Long story short, I became his friend and we became sort of like brothers over the years. We've gone through a lot together um, and uh, this is a guy I've spent a lot of time in genuine passion trying to show the way and be a big brother to. I've introduced him to my social circle, uh, bailed him out of jail, pointed out life's lessons as they happened, and again was his only friend most of the time I've known him. I now feel as though it's more of a leech-host relationship. Uh, this guy goes on and says, I don't mean to sound pompous like I'm some super cool dude, but I do feel underappreciated down, deep down and like all of this has been taken for granted. Mind you, we're in our late 20s and um, he will not bother to pick me up if my car breaks down so he can continue his video game, The World of Wizards, I think it is. Um, 
He'll take shots at anything I do or say. He's even shorted me on weed and kept it for himself after I, after I asked him to hook me up. These are little deals to him, but they pass like the hours on the clock and are forgotten by the beneficiary. Uh, he continues, I know I shouldn't expect friends to go out of the way or thank me for everything I do, but after all, we're friends. Um, I have other friends who tell me I'm cool and help me out and, and return you know, my favors. Um, so basically, he's kind of sick of this guy. And he wants to know, he says, uh, how do you view long-term friendships when there is what seems to be an uneven dynamic? Is it wrong to want to be around people who add to my life and not always take away or burden me? I don't believe so. But is it wrong to cut my friend off? And do you believe in time spent counting for anything? Okay, well, I've had occasion to think about these sorts of issues over the years, as I think most of us do, because, yeah, friendships change over time and the dynamic can change in ways that leaves you feeling uh, cheated or that there's an uneven um, investment in the friendship and um, you have every right to to alter the way you look at things and to uh, reassess whether or not the friendship is worth continuing um, on the other hand there is value in history. There's something really special about being with someone who knew you way back when and have seen the, has seen the progression of your life and um, you know, can give you the sort of uh, grounding that maybe new friends don't give you because they just see this later, this, this most recent layer of who you are. So yeah, you have to you have to weigh those issues, um, but there's also a, there's another element to this that I pick up in the language, and I think that the the writer is aware of as well. When he says, "I don't mean to sound like some some pompous, super cool socialite douchebag," because um, he knows he does, and I think what's important to look at is. What were you getting out of this friendship that maybe now you don't need anymore? Maybe that's the dynamic that's changing. Maybe it's not just that, you know, he's, you feel like he should be grateful to you for the years that you've spent trying to show him how to, how to be cool and, you know, that you've shared your friends with him and all that. But if you're honest with yourself, what were you getting out of that? You, people aren't blindly generous for years at a stretch. I don't believe that. I, I believe we can be blindly generous in an impulsive sort of way. We can run into traffic to save a kid that we don't know. Um, we can take great risks for strangers. That happens every day. But a sustained uneven relationship like this that's ostensibly objectively from the outside anyway appears to be uneven is something more complicated than that because the person who sees him or herself as the more generous one is still getting something that's important to them otherwise they wouldn't be doing this because if you're selfless 
you, you're not thinking about friendships this way. So the fact that you're even thinking about it this way, and, and believe me, I'm not condemning anyone, I think about friendships this way all the time. The fact that we think about them this way as a, as a give and take, as a, you know, what am I putting into it? What am I getting out of it? Is this someone I can count on if down the road, if I really need a friend? Is this someone who will, you know, bail me out of jail? Is this someone who will pick me up at the airport? Is this someone who will help me move? Is this someone who will help me move a body? Is this someone who will, you know, narc me out to the cops if they get arrested with my drugs in their car? What kind of friend is this? Those are all very legitimate questions to be asking and re-asking as the years go by. But I think it's really important to look at this relationship and say, okay, what were you getting out of it? Did you need to feel like, like you were some great guy and this relationship allowed you to do that? Was it important for you to be the cool one? Was it important for you to be the generous one? Was it important for you to have that kind of power within a, a relationship? You know, we look at romantic relationships all the time. And so there are all these relationships built around saving the other one. Teaching, oh, I'm going to show her, you know, how to be blah, blah, blah. Or I'm going to, you know, reform this man. He's got a, you know, good, good nature, but he doesn't know how to dress. And he wears these ridiculous shoes. And I'm going to, you know, fix him. We're all trying to fix the people around us. But I think that there's some deep dishonesty with ourselves around that around what it is that we need what it is that we're getting why do you need to feel like a fixer what's the where's the do you have a savior complex you have a superiority complex so you surround yourself by people who you feel are inferior to you if that's what's going on and has been going on for quite a while this guy might just be fucking sick of you too right because maybe he's feeling like oh yeah you're so fucking wonderful you're always giving me things and blah, 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 but you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it because you need to feel superior. So you hang around with me and make me feel inferior all the time. Or, or, or you sort of feed on my sense of inferiority. And then you act like you're such a great guy, but you're a parasite too. Maybe. Maybe that's what's going on. I don't know, of course. But when I look at my own life, and I freely admit that I've had relationships over the years, both with male friends and um, occasionally with, uh, with women, where I felt that I was in a position of um, giving more than I was receiving. And uh, when I look back on them, I see, well, I was receiving things I wasn't aware of at the time. Or maybe I just wasn't being uh, as honest with myself as I could have been. So that's my advice in a situation like this, to look very closely at the dynamic and don't assume that it's as one way as you think it is, which is not to say that it's a friendship that you want to continue because if you do that self-examination and find that you're feeding on him in a way and, and he's feeding on you in a way, that's not a healthy relationship. So... In any case, it sounds like a friendship that you want to uh, you want to put some space in, and uh, but do it gently because you know you in a way have been perpetuating this guy's problem. You've been contributing to some of the things that um, 
are making his life less than ideal. Okay, next message is uh, very interesting. This is from Jennifer. I hope you and Casilda are doing well, blah, blah, blah. I've read your book. I'm a huge fan of your wife. I'm hoping you might have some insights to help me on my journey to explore human behavior. I'm contacting you to see if you or Casilda had any research or experience to suggest how people with non-neurotypical brains, such as those with autism or Down syndrome, have been treated in ancient tribes or um, so-called non-civilized groups of people. So Jennifer is studying uh, for a master's in applied behavioral analysis, and she's a behavioral therapist for kids with autism. She also works as a mentor for adults with developmental disabilities. And um, yeah, she's doing very interesting and important work. She says, I see how these people are treated in contemporary American culture, and I wonder if there have been any other groups of people that have approached developmental disabilities differently. I feel that all humans are capable of having a role if they're given the tools, and I'm wondering if there has ever been a tribe that capitalized on the gifts of people with developmentally different brains and behavior. Excellent, excellent question, Jennifer. Uh, I'm far from an expert on this particular aspect of tribal life, but here are some of the things that came to my mind when I read your email. First of all, the bad news. Um, a lot of babies die in hunter-gatherer societies, and that appears to have been the norm. Uh, a lot of those babies die from... Um, infectious disease, you know, the typical stuff, uh, falling, uh, you know, getting a scratch that gets infected, break, broken bones, yada, yada, yada. Um, and uh, I think in most hunter-gatherer societies, you're looking about, you know, maybe 40 to 50% of children die before they reach the age of 10 or so. So that's a, that's a pretty heavy toll. Um, someone who has got um, inferior physical abilities, um, you know, uh, uh, something that would interfere with their being able to run and, and their balance, being able to climb, they're falling a lot, they're getting hurt a lot, they're likely to die from infection or, or other things early in life. Um, more bad news is that infanticide is quite common in hunter-gatherer society. So, if a child is born with um, an obvious physical abnormality, Down syndrome, for example, it's recognizable, or um, a physical, um, you know, problem, you know, malformed limbs or whatever, it's highly unlikely that that infant will be alive even a week, because. Generally, hunter-gatherer societies don't believe that infants are people. Um, their sense of personhood doesn't kick in until the child can speak in many cases. That's sort of typical of North American tribal societies. They believe that it's the ability to speak that conveys the personhood onto this creature. And you know, we look at that and say, well, obviously an infant's a person, but that's, we don't realize that's a cultural, um, the culturally defined aspect of reality. Um, you know, the abortion debate is over this question of what is a person? 
And obviously it's not decided, you know, both sides think they know, um, or, but there are more than two sides, right? There's the side that says mm, conception is the person. Um, there are people who think that sperm is half a person and an ovum is half a person and every time a you know, woman menstruates there's like a, a dead baby that half, half a soul goes to heaven or something. I mean there's all sorts of craziness, in my opinion, craziness around this issue. Um, other people say at three months. Other people say when the fetus has a heartbeat. Some people say it's, you know, when the, you can see whether it's a boy or a girl in the mammogram, or not mammogram, the, uh, the sonogram. You know, some people say it's, it's birth itself. Some people say whatever. It's arbitrary. Clearly, it's completely arbitrary. We're looking at an analog situation and trying to apply a digital mindset to it. When, you know, it's either zero or one, zero or one, on or off. No, that's not how life is. Life is analog. It's gray. It starts off white, turns out black, and it's all gray in between. So cultures decide when uh, uh, a fetus becomes a person. Um, and so infanticide, which we might consider murder in our society, we do consider murder in our society, in these other societies is nothing more than a postnatal abortion. Uh, they see the child, the child's not healthy, well, you know, there's no point in dragging this out. Also, we need to understand that hunter-gatherer societies, uh, death is not this weird philosophical concept that it is in our society. In fact, I have argued and, and will argue again that the entire construct of Western civilization is essentially a distraction from our knowledge of mortality. I've mentioned the book by Ernest Becker, The Denial of Death. I did a, an episode with Sheldon Solomon, who's sort of constructed an entire field of research in his career um, based on the, the unconscious mechanisms that we've developed um, to shield ourselves from the knowledge of, of our own mortality and the omnipresence of death. But in hunter-gatherer societies, that's impossible. Um, you know, when you're hunting for a living, you're, you're killing things a, a lot. Every week, you're killing something. Every week, you're killing monkeys with your blowgun. They look like little people, and then you're cooking them over the fire, and you're gnawing on the monkey's arm that looks exactly like your arm. You know, and you see the, the you know, you throw the hand to your kid, and your kid's, you know, biting into the monkey's hand holding it in his hands and they're exactly the same you know you and i we go to the store and we buy you know trimmed tri-tip beef you know little things that we put on a skewer and it comes in a plastic wrap with a cellophane and fucking styrofoam and it's like we don't see death right I, when i first got to barcelona i was struck years ago by going into the market and they have these rabbits hanging by their by their back feet right there in the market and they're like they're bloody there's blood dripping out of their eyes and they're just like ah, dead rabbits and even in the grocery store they sell rabbit for paella and stuff and they'll have like the rabbit they slice it down the middle so you've got like the left side of a rabbit or the right side of a rabbit 
and the head is right there and like one of its big teeth you know like Bugs Bunny's like the left side of Bugs Bunny right there in the grocery store staring up at you with one tooth it's ridiculous but the reason they they leave the heads on is apparently during the Spanish Civil War people were selling cat bodies and uh, as rabbit and so to you know assure that you're not buying a dead cat um, I guess their bodies look very similar and the meat tastes the similar or whatever um, they traditionally leave the heads on the rabbit so what's my point my point is that American society in particular and I think it's the same in the UK and Australia um, are very um, insulated the people who live in these societies are extremely insulated from death and therefore they're very uncomfortable about it and any any hint uh, of it but hunter-gatherers are not like that our ancestors were not like that they were surrounded by death they saw it every day it was obviously part of life and I think this is something that Rogan's always trying to get at and get people to see and with his all his hunting and you know the the thing that if you listen to Rogan you've heard him talk about this quite a bit and it's something that I admire that he's doing you know it's it's he sees something that um, modern society is filtering out of his existence and his children and and he's determined to to face the truth of it and so he's out there killing stuff and eating what he killed and, and you know it's like this is a dead animal's body I'm eating this is not a cutlet you know um, and uh, I think that's very healthy for him if not for the the elk and the bear but uh, hunter-gatherers are very in touch with this so this is all a very long explanation for why infanticide among hunter-gatherers is not in my opinion um, something to be condemned it's something to be understood and uh, it's also important to understand that that twins for example are rarely raised in hunter-gatherer societies they're generally put out in the woods to die um, because it's too much draws too too much uh, attention and resources from the mother she can't breastfeed the two of them uh, if there's not another woman who's willing to come in and take over then okay sorry twins um, even today there there were studies done in northeastern Brazil that I think we cited in sex at dawn of uh, societies modern contemporary societies in northeastern Brazil where the the rate of infant mortality was extremely high and they found that the reason is that women were letting their babies die if the babies showed any sign of lack of health or lack of vigor and there's a, a phrase in Brazilian I don't remember the phrase but it, it essentially um, translates to the child didn't want to live enough so you know there's I, I actually think about this sometimes I, I have a little personal habit I play angry birds on my phone while I'm waiting for the plane to take off it's the only time I've never played Angry Birds in any context other than sitting on an airplane waiting for it to take off um, and sometimes I'm playing Angry Birds and the first shot like I know I need to like you know loop it up over this tower and then hit this bomb and it's gonna blow up and then that has to be the first shot you know in order to have a chance of getting three stars or whatever I need to open with that shot and I miss it so am I gonna play this out knowing that I'm not gonna get a very good score 
or am I going to hit the little button up in the left-hand corner and start over again? Well, that's what I do. I start over again. And a lot of times that reminds me of this hunter-gatherer approach to things. Like, yeah, nine months of, of being pregnant is an investment, but it's nothing compared to the investment that comes after that if you have uh, an unable, uh, disabled kid that you're trying to raise in a nomadic hunter-gatherer environment. So they hit the restart button. And it start again. You know, let the next one come. Um, and so you can have your own feelings about whether that's the right way or the wrong way to approach life, but that is the way life is approached in most hunter-gatherer societies. That's the bad news. Okay, the good news is that when it comes to purely mental, psychological kind of issues, it's much more likely that a hunter-gatherer society will interpret some of these as being potentially positive and therefore will be much more supportive than our society is. So if you're a baby born with a disability in a hunter-gatherer society, you're probably not going to survive. And you'll be better off in a Western society where you're more likely to get the medical care and you know get your special wheelchairs or, or contraptions to, to help you survive. Now, in terms of if you're a 19-year-old boy and you start hearing voices um, showing signs of schizophrenia in Western society, you're going to be worse off because generally what's going to happen to you in Western society is you're going to be um, either drugged, sedated quite heavily, you're going to be diagnosed with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, psychotic break, and the prognosis is pretty bad for that. It's uh, generally, there's no known cure. Um, it can be controlled with drugs, but these are drugs that basically shut down your, your mental capacity quite strongly. So, um, in a hunter-gatherer society, what's likely to happen in, in some of these cases is you're hearing voices, you're sort of moving between worlds and this not, not being grounded and anchored in this reality uh, will be seen as, will potentially be seen as a call to shamanize. In other words, you'll be seen as someone that the gods, the spirit world, has chosen to speak through because you move between the different worlds. Most hunter-gatherer societies envision three worlds and we live in the middle world. And there's no positive and negative uh, associated with the upper and lower world. It's not heaven and hell. It's not, not a Dante-esque kind of thing. Um, but they, they generally envision human beings in this life living in the middle world. And dreams are often seen as um, drifting into the upper and lower worlds when we're unconscious. What shamans can do is they can intentionally go to these other worlds, to these other realms, and seek answers. So it might be generally in a healing capacity, it would be, you know, someone has some mysterious illness, the shaman will take some drugs, uh, eat some plants, whatever, or just go into a trance and seek the answer. What ails this person? 
from the spirit world, from the upper or the lower world. And the people who have the ability to do this often exhibit this budding ability uh, at a late teens, early 20s kind of age. And they, the symptoms are essentially what we associate with severe mental illness, with uh, schizophrenia particularly. There's a book, if you're interested in this sort of thing, there's a book called Black Elk Speaks, which uh, is a classic of the Native American literary canon um, by Nearheart is the name of the author. But if you Google Black Elk Speaks, you'll see it. It's, it's very well known. And there are sections in there at the beginning where he's talking about his life and he has these symptoms. He's speaking. He, he thinks the animals can talk to him. He thinks he can change the weather just with his men, just by thinking things. And he's got these very sort of magical um, powers and he has a, a mental breakdown. He's in a coma for three or four days. Like all this crazy shit happens to him as a, as a teen, I think between 15 and 19 or something. And, um, and the way his society reacts to it is to say, this guy could be, if we help him, get through this, this young man could grow up to be an incredibly powerful healer. And so we need to help him. We need to get together. And so they do. The shaman listens to this. When the kid was in a coma, he uh, had all these visions. And then when he comes out of the coma, he tells the shaman about these visions. And then the shaman gets the people of the village to reenact the vision that this kid had. And I, if I remember correctly, that it was like a horseman. He's in the center of this village, and the horsemen ride in from the four directions, you know, north, south, east, west. And, and then they circle around, and they're doing... There's like a sort of a horseback dance thing that happens. And so the entire tribe reenacts this vision for this boy. Imagine that, a 15-, 16-year-old boy. The entire tribe, 50, 60, 70 people in your village are putting on a show so that you can live a dream that you had because they want to help you. you. Compare that to what happens in our society. You're sick. Go to a hospital. Stay away from me. Or just take these pills. If you don't take these pills, we're going to send you to prison or to the hospital. In the American society, prisons are where we send mentally ill people. Since the Reagan administration in the early 80s shut down publicly funded mental health facilities all across the country. Now, I'm in San Francisco as I, as I speak these words. I'm going to stop recording this in a few minutes and walk down the street. I pass homeless people every fucking block. Every block. And most of them are suffering from mental illness. They're not bad people. They're not lazy people. They're sick people. And they're no more responsible for their sickness than the person who has liver cancer or the person who slipped at work and broke their leg and now they can't walk correctly. These people are sick. Many of the, the illnesses that they have are related to genetics, very clearly related to genetics. They have absolutely no fault in being where they are and yet we treat them, literally, we treat them like criminals. You can't sleep here. You can't do that. You can't ask people for money. You go to prison. You can't shit in the street. Ah, are there any bathrooms? No. Well, you can't shit in the street. And they end up in prison. 
It's incredible. But that's, that's the way we run this society. It's incredibly brutal and, uh, and inaccurate from any medical standpoint. So there's your answer. Uh, kind of overly nuanced, perhaps, but there it is. Um, I hope that is helpful for you, Jennifer. Basically, mental illness, you're probably better off in a hunter-gatherer society. Uh, physical, any sort of physical ailment or, or mental cognitive ailment that manifests physically, not so much. Okay, I'm going to cut this off because I have to run, but I thought I would just throw one of these together. Only two. I'll do more later. People who've been writing asking about um, Toma, the, you know, what happened with that, why, why did you stop doing it, whatever. I haven't stopped doing it, I just haven't done it. Uh, this podcast, as I've mentioned, in all its different iterations, is... As, is more a hobby than a job as far as I'm concerned. If it became a job, I probably wouldn't do it because I'm not very good with jobs, as you may have heard. Um, so I do these things when the spirit moves me, when I'm, I just happen to be sitting around feeling like it and I've got the machine here, like today. Um, so I'll get to it. Uh, the next episode in Toma is going to be pretty interesting. I remember it well and... Uh, it takes place in Jaisalmer, Rajasthan, and involves a mountain-climbing woman and camels and moonlight and uh, a can of mace. So there's a teaser. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. This has been an episode of Roma, Responding Out My Ass. <laughs>